You're listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a podcast devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org, where you can find links and other information related to the show. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. You can email feedback to aaron at paleorunner.org. If you downloaded this through iTunes and are listening on an Apple device, you can follow along with chapters and links. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Lear Keith, author of The Vegetarian Myth. In her book, she writes about how she overcame health problems caused by eating a vegetarian diet for over 20, 20 years. Lear, you wrote a fascinating book that really changed my perspective about eating meat. Prior to reading your book, I wasn't sure if eating meat was an ecologically sustain, sustainable way to eat. And your book showed me that, you know, it is actually okay to eat meat and I'm not going to destroy the environment by doing this. So the first question I'd like to ask you is, your book is titled The Vegetarian Myth. What do you, exactly do you mean by that? What I mean is that uh, there's, I think, three main reasons uh, that people become vegetarian. And, you know, the underlying values of that vegetarian ethic are not actually the problem. So things like justice and compassion and sustainability, those are really the only values that are going to get us to the world that we all want. So that's not the problem. The problem is how we institute those values. The problem is the framework we put around those values and how we decide to try to make change based on those values. And so from my perspective and my, my 20 years as a vegan, there were three main reasons that people took it up. And one was political, which is to say that, you know, th there's a belief that if we all ate a vegetarian diet, there would be more food for everyone on the planet. And so it's a matter of justice. That's not true. Um, number two is um, a sort of a moral idea that if you eat a vegetarian diet, no animals will be harmed or killed. And so it's uh, a more spiritual or, or a more ethical way to eat in terms of suffering of sentient beings. That is also not true. And then the third reason is, is the health benefits that, you know, we've been told for 20 years now by the U.S. government that we should be eating a, a high carb, low fat diet. And then you get things like the China study, which, you know, completely vilifies all animal products. And so, you know, if you eat animal products, are like the work of the devil at this point. Um, and none of that turns out to be true either. So the three main reasons that people become vegetarian turn out to be myths. Okay. So I didn't call it vegetarian lie because I don't think it's a lie. I don't think anybody's out there trying to promote a falsehood. And I do still think that the underlying values are the correct values. The problem is just purely informational. And these are myths that have been propagated. So that's why I called it the vegetarian myth. Okay. So you gave three reasons there why the vegetarian way of eating is a myth. What it, When I started reading your book, it seemed like one of the important reasons for you to start looking for other ways of eating was your health problems. Do you mind going into some of those and what kind of things you experienced from eating a diet, a vegetarian diet for 20 years? Yeah, well, I was a vegan, which of course is the most extreme um, version of a vegetarian diet. I think if you're a vegetarian, you can limp along for a much longer period of time um, before you start to get really catastrophic health effects. But my health fail, failed completely. I, I mean, I have permanent damage that's never going to go away. So I started when I was 16, which of course is way too young to be doing anything like this kind of dietary experimentation. Your brain is not finished um, growing yet. You're still, there's this whole process where you're, you know, all the nerves in your brain have to accumulate enough fat. And, you know, the brain is still putting itself together as a teenager. And 
becoming a vegan at that young age, I, I, I think I really did myself in, in terms of sort of a lifelong tendency to things like depression and anxiety. Mm. Um, so that's always going to be there. It's dramatically better. Of course, eating enough protein and fat every day, um, was, it was a pretty instantaneous cure for a lot of it. Um, but I would say that's the number one reason people write to me is the depression, anxiety kind of, uh, trajectory that they're on even to out and out like OCD and like really extreme kinds of suicidal, you know, ideation and whatnot. And, um, you know, if they're willing to try something new and, and they do adopt even for a few days, a more appropriate human diet, I mean, they'll write me back with these miracle stories of how much better they feel. I've experienced that myself. So I know what that's like. So that was one thing that happened pretty much right away mm. when I started eating protein and fat. <laughs> what do you know? So that was one problem. Um, another problem and this happens to a lot of women who, who become, especially low-fat vegetarian, which of course would be vegan. Um, I had tremendous problems with my menstrual cycle. I, I pretty much stopped menstruating for that 20-year period. So, which is to say that if I had been trying to get pregnant, it would not have been possible. I mean, it's just, my cycle was just at a complete standstill. Now I understand why, that cholesterol is actually the building block. It's the mother hormone. It's what all your hormones are made from, and that includes your sex hormones. So this is just as true for men as it is for women. And, you know, without that building block, you can't make things like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and, and the hormones that really not just, I mean, they don't just have a sexual function. They have all kinds of functions in our bodies. They're really necessary, even for things like mood stabilization and, you know, a, a happy mood state. You can't get it without cholesterol. So, I mean, that was, that's absolutely just a, a dead ringer. And, and this is a story you'll hear from so many different women who have been vegetarian or vegan is, you know, that this, these problems with fertility and with menstrual disorders. I'm lucky in that that was the only thing that happened to my reproductive organs. So when I started eating the appropriate diet, my period came back in two weeks, literally. This is after 20 years, okay? Oh, wow. I know, it was so dramatic. And the soy is part of this. We can talk about soy if you want. Yeah. But with two weeks, I, I had a menstrual period. And literally since then, it's been, what, 12 years? I have not missed one since. I mean, it could not have been more dramatic. Wow. This is not like, well, maybe. I mean, it was like, boom, nothing, mm. boom, perfectly normal within two weeks. My sister, who was also a long-term vegan, she did it for 12 years, I think, um, was not as lucky. She ended up with endometriosis and had to have a hysterectomy. So her story does not end as well as mine does. Um, though certainly eating a more appropriate diet, it, it helped, but it was too late. Once that was set in process, I don't think there was any stopping it at that point. So okay. she ended up having surgery. Um, but these are stories that you will hear a lot from women, and they don't understand what they're doing wrong because, of course, we're doing what the government has told us to do. We're doing what all the health advice, Dr. Oz, you know, all everybody out there in the, in the public, this is the message we've been getting now for almost a whole generation is to eat this plant-based, low-fat, you know, high-carb diet. And it absolutely wrecks havoc on, you know, the human endocrine system and, you know, our human reproduction. So that was another thing that happened to me. Um, within two years, I had developed a degenerative disease of the spine. So I was only 18 at that point and my spine started falling apart and nobody knew why. And I went to, you know, doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist, nobody could tell me what was wrong and why this had happened to me. They can look at my MRI, you know, the, the wonderful pictures they get from the little magnets and the, the funny machine. And the pictures are astounding because you can see all kinds of detail about the inner workings of your body that you would never get to see otherwise. And it's sort of like looking at an undersea creature, you know, that you'll, you'll never see any other way. And, there's a certain amount of awe that I feel looking at those sorts of pictures, but 
you know, my pictures are horrendous. I mean, the doctors will look at this and say, were you in a horrible car accident? Did you fall off a roof? Was it skydiving? What in the world did you do to your spine? And the only answer I can give them is actually, no, I just ate a really crappy diet for 20 years. And this is what happens. Um, I understand now exactly what I did and why a vegan diet is going to lead to that. But at the time, I had no idea. I thought I was doing the right thing. And of course, none of those doctors have any training in nutrition. They didn't even think to ask because they don't know that that can be the problem. So we, we sort of stumbled along like this for a decade or two. Finally, I come across, across kind of Weston Price type information about, you know, particularly, I mean, he was a dentist, right? So all of his stuff is about, you know, joints and bones and teeth. And, you know, it was a revelation to me that I had pretty much done this to myself without knowing. So what kind of nutrients were you missing out on as a vegetarian? That, yeah, well, yeah, that would cause like the spinal problems. Right. Okay. So there's two problems with this kind of diet. One is problems of excess and the other is problems of deficiency. So the deficiency problems right away, you've got the vitamin A and the vitamin D and the vitamin K2. Vitamin D. Now there is a myth that we can get enough vitamin D simply through sunshine on our skin. This is only true if you live in the tropics and you run around naked most of the time. For everybody else on the planet, there's no way that your body is going to produce enough vitamin D. It will certainly try, but it's not going to work. So we need a lot more vitamin D than we've been let on. And most of us, you know, if we're not getting it through our food, then we're going to have to take supplements. And if you are a vegan, you are not eating. There is no non-animal source of vitamin D. It doesn't exist. You've got to get it from your food. Nobody told me that. So I wasn't eating any vitamin D. So right away, you've got a problem. That's really crucial to bone and joint health. Vitamin A is very similar. Um, people do get confused because, oh, isn't there vitamin A in carrots? The problem is the vitamin A that is, that's in uh, plant products like carrots, it's not actually vitamin A. It's, it's pro-vitamin A. It's a precursor to vitamin A. And your body then has to do the conversion to turn it into actually usable vitamin A. And humans are really bad at that. It can take something like eight units of the, the precursor to make the actual vitamin A. So you have to eat an awful lot. Um, the very young and the very old can't do it at all. I mean, small children are not able to do this until they're probably seven or eight years old, which is to say there's a reason that children don't really like vegetables. They can't actually digest and assimilate them. Um, you're sort of fighting an uphill battle to force them because it's biologically, you know, their bodies are kind of rejecting it. It's like, I don't like this for a reason, mom. And that's the reason, or dad, I shouldn't just single out the mothers here, parents in general, grandparents, um, there's right. a reason that your, your small children don't like vegetables and certainly encourage them to eat vegetables. It's you know not bad particularly, but they can't assimilate them and their bodies know that. Mm. So there's a sort of thing joke that you know the best way to get vegetables into a child is to pass those vegetables through a ruminant first. <laughs> so if them beef, for instance, or bison or whatever grows in your region, then they can get the vitamin A and the vitamin D and the whatever, but from the plant substance alone, no, they can't. And there's an entire class of people who are called obligate carnivores. And these are people whose genetic history probably involves living on an island or a coast somewhere. Um, and because there's so much vitamin A naturally in seafood, those people lost the ability to make that uh, the transition from the vitamin, the, the precursor into real vitamin A. There's an enzyme they lack because they simply didn't need it anymore. They were getting so much in their diets. And these people will die if they do not eat animal products. Um, wow. And so for your listeners, you know, if you come from, you know, Celtic people, Pacific Island people, whatever your background is, if it involves an island or a coastline, you might want to really reconsider if you're attempting a vegetarian or a vegan diet. You, you may die from it. Mm. And this is not anything to take lightly. Uh, vitamin A is absolutely crucial for human health. 
on, on many, many levels. So the vitamin D, the vitamin A are lacking. K2 is another one. It is possible to get some K2 from some leafy green substances, but honestly not that much. And you're better off just getting the whole thing from, again, from animal products, particularly mm -hmm. things like grass-fed butter, um, liver, egg yolks, those really nutrient-dense foods. They will have the K2 that we need. All three of those are very, very crucial to bone formation, joint health, um, teeth, you know, the sort of basic physical structure of the human body. And I wasn't getting any. So that's problem number one. Mm. Problem number two is that to have healthy bones and joints and teeth, you need a lot of minerals. And, you know, the highest mineral substance that, that humans have eat is, of course, bones themselves. There's plenty of cultures where people just eat bones. And, you know, they hand a small bone to the two-year-old to chew on. Um, and then the, the marrow, of course, is really nutrient-dense as well. And that is scooped out and considered somewhat of a delicacy, you know, given to pregnant women first, given to small children first for that reason. They're the people who need the most nutrition. Um, but people either eat bones or they eat bone broth. So, you know, you can simmer bones for a day or two on your stove. And many of those minerals will then, of course, fall out of the bones, come into the water. But this is why broth is something that's made you know, in, by so many cultures around the globe, everybody's got broth. Mm -hmm. it's interesting. I have a friend whose family is from Pakistan and I started talking to her about all this and she's like, oh yeah, all the women in my community know this. It, and they have very specific kinds of broth for what's wrong with you. So if you're pregnant, you get a certain kind of broth. After the baby's born, you get a different kind of broth. If you have this sort of illness, you're given this sort of broth. Like they've got it down to a real science. Exactly. What herbs and what bones and how long and what sort of fat... And I'm sure they're right. I wish somebody would actually study this scientifically. Like, so what's in all these different broths? Why would that be good for a newborn baby? Why would that be good for a postpartum woman? I'm sure there's a reason. They don't come up with this stuff for, for no good reason. And I'm sure over thousands of years they figured it out, what worked. Anyway, right. broth is really key for that reason. It's a really great way. There's also a lot of gelatin in broth. And that is what they call hydrophilic. Um, and what that means is it coats your intestinal tract and helps your intestines absorb even more nutrients. So when you drink broth, you're getting this wonderful layer that will help you get more food out of it, more nutrients, and then you're getting the minerals themselves, which of course are so crucial to really our emotional health and then all the way down to bone and joint health. Now, as a vegetarian or a vegan, I wasn't eating any of that. I mean, mm -hmm. just none. <laughs> there was, literally was no source of minerals in my diet. So of course, I'm going to end up with these kinds of problems. So I would say that's the second most common thing that people write to me about, just sort of as questions or, you know, sort of fan mail or whatever. It's they develop these terrible joint and bone problems and they don't know why and they can't go running anymore. They can't go dancing and they don't understand what's happened. And, you know, that's it. There's no minerals in that diet. So those are the, the big some of the big deficiencies in the diet. Um, some of the problems with, um, you know, the excesses in the diet, of course, are that it's almost entirely carbohydrate. And if you want to call that complex carbohydrate, you can go ahead. But at the end of the day, it's all sugar. Mm -hmm. Your body has to break it down into simple sugars. Whether it goes in your body as a, a whole wheat bagel or a piece of white bread, it doesn't actually matter. Eventually, it all has to be cleared for your bloodstream. So it's a huge load of, load of sugar every day. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that most of us are going to end up hypoglycemic or diabetic. We're going to end up with just these tremendous blood sugar problems. And from there, of course, what opens out is that whole metabolic syndrome. So diabetes heart disease, high blood pressure, it's all related to excess insulin. So when you eat that load of sugar, your body goes into emergency mode and the pancreas has to release this huge hit of insulin. Um, you can only survive at a very, very small range of sugar in your blood. If it's too high or too low, you will go into a coma and you could die. Um, wow. And your 
knows that. So anybody who's diabetic can tell you that. It's a very, very narrow range. We were never meant to absorb the load of sugar that agricultural diets uh, make us absorb. So some so, people might be thinking, you know, why is it that so many nutrition experts recommend this high-carbohydrate, grain-based diet? If, it, if what you're saying is true, do you have an explanation for them, if they might be thinking that? Well, there's two, there's two explanations, and they are related. Um, and I'm going to start by saying people who really want to get into this need to read a book by Gary Taubes, which mm -hmm. is called Good Calories, Bad Calories. The book is big. I will not, you know, I'm not going to pull any punches here. It's probably 500 pages. It is fabulous. And he's got an entire section where he walks through what happened at the U.S., what happened to the, um, you know, in, in the government to put forward the, the recommendations that they did in right. 1978 about eating that high carb low fat diet and how that happened politically mm. and it's well worth reading because the traditional foods that you know people have eaten for forever what they call protective foods traditional foods those did not go down without a fight they had to have 8 weeks of hearings because so many doctors came forward and said you cannot recommend doing this kind of an experiment on the american public you can't do it government and so they kept saying you know another expert another expert who came forward and and said you you just this is just wrong we we don't have enough evidence to suggest that this is going to be helpful in fact we already have a lot of evidence to say that it's destructive to human health but it didn't matter politics won the day so these, these were very political decisions, as, as many things are, all right? So you need to get into the guts of this if you really want to understand what happened. So um, there's a couple of different variables that were going on, a couple of different sort of threads that were taking hold in the culture. Um, one thing to know is that the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they are not charged with protecting human health or promoting human health in any way. Their job is to promote commodity agricultural foods. So wheat and corn and soy, that's their mm -hmm. job and that's what they do. So of course they're going to come up with, you know, the food pyramid, which says we should all be eating, you know, 200 servings of grain or whatever the hell it is now every day because their job is to sell that stuff. And mm -hmm. it really is just that simple. So, you know, I'm not trying to be like paranoid conspiracy theory. That is their job and that's what they've done. So right. not like a gap there, you know, <laughs> between their job and how they did their job. Um, that one's really straightforward. And then you had, um, you know, an, another current that sort of comes comes into this is the fact that they actually make the food producers. So there's these giant corporations, and there's only six of them now that pretty much control the world food supply. That's a scary number, and that's a tiny, tiny little group of people. But to make this very simple, the way that they make the most money is by selling us processed carbohydrate. Because the carbohydrate itself now is subsidized by the U.S. government to an extraordinary degree. I mean, every year there's this thing called the Farm Bill. And what that is, is us, the U.S. taxpayers, subsidizing corporate America to produce more corn and wheat and soy. Literally, our tax dollars go to promote more of that. So they get these huge, these huge, they're getting all this money from the government to continue to grow this stuff. Then it, that makes it really cheap when it enters the market. And then if they can process it a tiny bit, so take potatoes and turn them into potato chips or take wheat and turn it into, you know, bread and Twinkies, they make even more money because the base ingredient is so cheap because of those subsidies. And then they add a little bit value-added product, put it in some plastic, and they can sell it for a lot more. That's the biggest spread for them. That's where they make the most money. So, of course, the moment that the U.S. government came out and said, oh, everybody should eat this high-carb diet, that was a bingo for them. I mean, it's right, cash, right. cash crop, right? I mean, just and, and it came rolling. So you've got some forces out there that are not particularly on the side of our health, our communities, rural communities, 
animal welfare. I mean, none of these play into it at all. It was not a decision that we got to make as a culture, as a society. Um, you know, the people in power made these decisions and the rest of us just tend to follow suit. And it's not because we're stupid. It's just because if you hear it 30 times a day, if everywhere you turn from Oprah to, you know, Women's Day to whatever on NPR, if you're hearing the same message, you just believe it. And it, in order to get the information that tells you something different, you actually have to research, which means you have to be interested. Mm -hmm. And most people just, they don't have time, you know, like they're just keeping their heads above water, paying the mortgage, trying to get their kids to school. And it's asking too much to get every single person out there to be educated to that level. And I understand that. And that's why what you're doing is so important. And the other people who have radio shows and you know, put out newsletters and get involved in the food co-op, because it needs to be a sea change in the whole culture mm -hmm. so that every individual doesn't have to do two years of research or five years of research to figure it out. We can present the condensed version and just see if it makes common sense to people. Yeah. And at that point, they may do more. But if it makes sense, like, you know, one of my big things is to say, look, for 4 million years, we ate a paleolithic diet. I mean, by definition, that's what we were and that's what we ate. We did not have these diseases. Mm -hmm. These diseases, they're called the diseases of civilization. There are no corresponding diseases of hunter-gatherers, right? So right. diabetes, cancer, you know, all this heart disease, all this stuff doesn't happen. All the autoimmune diseases, arthritis, none of that happens until you take up agriculture. Then you see the fossil record is quite clear, the archaeological record. Then you see all these diseases in human skeletons, and their teeth fall out, and they're six inches too short, and their brains shrink. All right. Before that point, you don't see it. After it, yes, and it's pretty immediate. So right there, that's, that to me was one of the most compelling things that I've ever heard. And yeah. it's like, oh, okay, so there's something to this. That might make you go out and do a little more research, especially mm -hmm. if you have children and you're worried about feeding them. But up to that point, you're just going to believe what the culture around you believes. It's really hard to stand against it. How about turning our attention to the environment? A lot of people say that eating meat is bad for the environment, and that's something I'm, I was concerned about when I first started moving towards an ancestral-type diet. What do you, what's your response to that? Okay. Um, this answer is a little bit long, but I want people to understand the concepts because it can't be done in a sentence or two. Right. Like, you know, their side, it's the side I used to be on. Um, it's really simple. You can say things like meat is murder, and it seems perfectly clear what they're getting at. For me to under, for me to get people to understand how complicated this is, it does take a few minutes. So I'm just mm -hmm. apologizing up front. This is going to take a little bit of time, and I hope people will follow through. Yeah, that's okay, fine. So, <laughs> it is. I know. It took me 20 years to figure this out. Mm -hmm. 20 years of really thinking and, and experimenting with things until it finally made sense to me. Okay, so you have to understand what agriculture is. There are many, many ways that people have figured out how to feed themselves, you know, so there's many, many different food cultures on the planet. And there's a few different patterns that food falls to, the gathering of food, the getting of food, the finding of food. You've got hunter-gatherers, you have pastoralists, you have horticulturalists, and then you have agriculture. So the first three are, in fact, perfectly sustainable if done correctly, if done wisely. There's no reason that those, those first three ways of getting food can't go on forever, essentially, and provide for human health as well as for um, a sustainable planet. So those three are not a problem. And those are some variations of what humans did for those first 4 million years. Then you get to agriculture. Now, agriculture only started in seven different places around the globe. And it started, the first one was about 10,000 years ago. And that was in what was called the Fertile Crescent, Iraq, Iran, that area, the Mesopotamia, all that area, that region. Um, and it's a very specific activity. And what it means is you take a piece of land and then you clear every living thing off it. 
And I mean down to the bacteria. Yeah, that area is not very fertile anymore, is it? No, you'd kind of be out of your mind to call that place the Fertile Crescent. I mean, we've all seen pictures from the, you know, the Iraq War, what it looks like now. Mm-hmm. And that used to be a cedar forest, okay? And that's what it looks like now. And the writer Derek Jensen has this great quote where he says, forests precede us and deserts dog our heels. And that is this process for the last 10,000 years. That is what people have done to the planet. And they've done it mainly through this, this activity called agriculture. Um, that's not agriculture on a bad day. That's what agriculture is, is taking that land, clearing away what was there, all the plants, all the animals, eventually the soil degrades, and you're left with nothing but bare rock. Um, and then you have to go somewhere else and try over, start over again because you've used it up, right? You've destroyed it. And so now you have to go out and, and try again somewhere else. And that's the history of the last 10,000 years. So the societies that take this up end up being imperialist and militaristic, not because they're bad people to start with, but because having used up their food sources, they then have to find them somewhere else. So you end up with these giant power centers, usually a large city like, say, ancient Rome, and it's surrounded by conquered colonies from which Rome extracts the things that it needs. So the food, the trees, the fish, you know, whatever has to come from somewhere else. And that it requires, of course, a giant military. So the, the pattern of human society changes along with this new activity called agriculture. And it's not a net plus for most people on the planet. Um, it requires backbreaking labor. So people, you know, there's, there's this vast population that, that ends up in slavery. And indeed, by the year 1800, which is when uh, the, the beginning of the fossil fuel age, but by that year, 1800, three quarters of the people on this planet were living in some form of either slavery, indenture, or serfdom. Because that's what agriculture requires. Now, we've forgotten that. We don't have a cultural memory of that anymore because we've been using fossil fuel ever since. But that is sort of, you know, that is the pattern that agricultural societies always fall to. And it's because it's based on that destruction. So, you know, here we are kind of at the end point of this. The planet has been essentially skinned alive. There is no more topsoil. In fact, by 1950, the major grain growing regions of the world were pretty well played out. Um, so that means that 98% of the old growth forests are gone. And it means that 99% of the prairies are gone. Mm-hmm. That is, these are just vast statistics. And if you is, is that to replace, be replaced with grain? Pretty much. Yep. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. <laughs> um, some of it's been so desertified that there's nothing there now at all. Um, but that is what agriculture does. It takes, it takes the land that it can and it turns it into this monocrop for human beings. Now, if you've ever driven through or flown over Kansas or Nebraska or Iowa, you see this. And that's what you see when you look down. It's acre upon acre upon acre of corn or wheat or soy. So in your view, if, if more people started eating meat in, in, in a way that they were naturally fed just by eating grass, would that would those uh, crops be re- replaced with grassland? Well, that to me is the goal, is that we need to repair what we've destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, if we simply got out of the way, in fact, those living communities would come back. When you do agriculture, you're fighting a war against the living world because this planet does not want to be a monocrop for humans. The planet wants to be you know, a complex web of living relationships that create more life. And that's what soil is. It's dead plants, dead animals, acted upon by tiny little microfauna, bacteria, who then you know, break down the nutrients and recycle them for use again by plants and animals. And it's all one huge cycle. And every year in a grassland or in a forest, there's more soil because soil is the basis of that whole process. Soil is not insensate dirt. It is alive 
Beyond our wildest imaginings, one tablespoon of soil can contain over a million different living organisms. And they are the ones who are doing the basic work of life. And every time you strip away that grass or you rip down those trees and you put a plow to soil, you destroy that soil. We owe our entire existence to six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. And that's what we've destroyed by taking up agriculture. Now, since 1950, what we've been eating instead is fossil fuel. Right. Because science figured out how to take oil and gas and turn it into usable fertilizer. This is not a plan with the future, people. <laughs> There's only so much oil on the planet. And they can keep coming up with, you know, more and better and scarier technologies to try to get it out. The day will come when it's gone. It doesn't matter whether that's tomorrow, in 20 years, in 50 years. It will be over. What then? Okay, none of this was a plan with the future. We blew through the topsoil. Now we're blown for the fossil fuel. This is an activity that is based on drawdown. And if you keep drawing down, you get to zero. And this is what we're going to have to face. So to me, part of the problem is the people who care the most, so people who have you know, environmental passions and who really care about the planet, they don't have complete information about where it's gone wrong. They need to ask a, a whole other level of questions that goes deeper into this process called agriculture. Yeah, and what they're using... Well, I was just going to say what they're using to back up these claims about a plant-based diet saving the world is factory farming. Mm. And I think on that we can agree. It's a tremendous waste of, um, you know, just basic energy, calories, things like corn going into ruminants who don't want to eat corn. And, you know, it is a very destructive process and it certainly creates hell on earth for those poor animals. And I think that, you know, everybody can at least agree to that. Yeah. But, you know, my point is that that corn shouldn't even be grown at all. I don't actually care whether we feed it to ruminants or try to feed it to people. It's not good for the cows. It's not good for us. And it's destroyed the planet. Mm. I mean, the worst thing that ever happened to this planet was the domestication of wheat um, because this is the destruction that, that it, it leaves in its wake. So, yes, I would like to see the grasslands repaired. And, you know, just to give you one statistic, if we could even take 75% of the world's destroyed grasslands, and they've been destroyed for agriculture, um, even 75% of them, and restore the grass that should be there, those perennial polycultures, and the ruminants that the grass needs to be healthy. So the whole community has to be restored. You can't just put in part of it. It all has to come back. But if we could do that over even 75% of the world's grasslands, um, it would only take about 15 years. We could sequester all of the carbon that's been released since the beginning of the industrial age. That's how good grass is at building topsoil. That's wow. the job of grass is to build soil. And the basic building block is carbon. And if you actually back up from um, the year 1800 to the beginning of agriculture over that, say, you know, nine or 10,000 years, actually as much carbon was released into the air from doing agriculture as has been released since the beginning of the industrial age. So industrialization was an acceleration of the process, clearly, but it actually began 10,000 years ago. And it's because, you know, when you rip down the forest and you plow up the prairie, um, all that soil gets destroyed. And when, when all that organic matter gets burned through, what it releases, of course, is again, that basic building block, the carbon goes right up into the atmosphere. So if you, if you back up the graph another 10,000 years, you'll see that what I'm saying is, is true. Um, and, you know, there is a simple remedy. We just repair what we've destroyed. Um, and this could be done. I mean, there's no reason we couldn't. We don't need a high-tech solution. The planet knows how to do the repair. We just have to get out of the way. Right. And it seems like there's a lot of interest in this paleo movement and that people are starting to take more and more interest in where their food comes from. Yeah, and I think that's incredibly positive. I think that um, these, a lot of people who take up paleo, 
I have found anyway, I think about half of them tried vegetarianism first, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we tend to be people who are interested in health and in fitness, and that's what we're told to do. So everybody does it, and then they end up with terrible blood sugar problems. They're so exhausted they can't move. Their joints are aching all the time. You know, they end up with all these problems, and then they discover paleo, usually at a gym or through another fitness buddy. And what do you know? You know, two weeks later, they feel great again. Mm. And it's true. I mean, that's, but you know, it, it has to come with, you can't just eat meat, period. Like, you know, you have to understand what's in the meat. Where did it come from? Why, what's the difference between like a good meat and a bad meat? And the, the real thing here, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't, you know, be a revelation, but of course it was to me, what the animal eats is the most important thing. And if you're feeding a, a cow a whole bunch of corn, then A, the animal is really sick because that corn is way too acid for the the natural rumen of a cow is actually neutral. When, when you feed it corn, then it becomes very acid. And that means that the bacteria that the cow relies on, they'll die. And what you're left with is things like E. coli. And that's why we ended up with an E. coli problem in this country. It's feeding the corn to the cows. Cows naturally aren't little E. coli breeders. You know, <laughs> that's not good for a cow either, but that's how that happened. Um, anyway, so it also, to, to feed them corn changes the amino acid profile of the meat, and it also profoundly changes the fatty acid profile of the meat. So this is one reason that people like Julia Ross talk about how we have a depression epidemic. And one of the reasons is because of factory farming, that corn is very low in tryptophan, the amino acid tryptophan. Mm -hmm. And if you know the nutrition, you know that tryptophan is the building block of, you know, the precursor to 5-HTP and um, serotonin. And so without tryptophan, it's an essential amino acid. So if you're not eating any tryptophan, you will not get serotonin in your brain. Your brain can't produce it from nothing. You've got to have that building block. So by feeding corn to cows, we've made a whole bunch of meat that does not have enough tryptophan for, for the human brain to be happy when it eats those burgers. So this is one reason why there's been this huge upswing in depression. I think that Julia Ross is absolutely right about that. So that's one problem is that the amino acid profile, and then you've got the fatty acid profile. So you're going to have way too many omega-6s and not enough omega-3s. And that's because grain is all plant products are very high in omega-6s and they have little to, to, to zero of the omega-3s. And, you know, very quickly on that, if, if your, your listeners aren't up on omega-6s versus omega-3s, these are fatty acids that are essential to human health. You do need both, but you need them in balance. And there's some debate about, you know, what the proper ratio is. Some people say one to one. Mm -hmm. something close to one-to-one -one, I think is probably about accurate. And the problem is that by eating this high, you know, this high grain diet, the high carb diet, it's all omega-6s and no omega-3s. Right. And what that means is that omega-6s are very inflammatory. So you're going to get all these inflammatory diseases. For instance, you're going to get inflammation in your arteries. So you're going to get, you know, th these diseases that are, you know, heart disease, essentially cardiovascular disease, because everything's inflamed all the time. So, and now you've got, you know, your blood vessels are under pressure. You've got inflammation, you've got pressure, and of course you're going to start springing a leak, right? And then your body's going to try to patch it using cholesterol because that's the body's repair substance is cholesterol. And then cholesterol gets blamed for clogging your arteries. Well, the mm -hmm. cholesterol is doing its job trying to keep you alive. That's not the problem. The real problem is why are there rips and tears in your blood vessels? And the reason is, one of the reasons is this high-carb diet that has you know, you're eating all these inflammatory substances. Right, right. That's And so then it also, omega-6s are also implicated in all kinds of um, mental and emotional disturbances too. I mean, everything from bipolar disorder. Okay. But, but you were, that was, that's really interesting that you me mentioned mental health because isn't the brain made of like 80% fat or something like that? 
Yes, exactly. I mean, your brain is basically a big blob of fat. And if you don't give it fat for fuel, nothing can happen correctly. Mm-hmm. If you think of us, think of us one way, we are actually a set of electrical impulses inside a watery environment. So mm-hmm. our nerves, right, they fire electrically. You need that communication throughout the body is done through your nervous system is all, all electrical. How does that work inside the wet of your body? And the way that it works is that your, your nerves are actually insulated. So just like you'd have an insulated wire, you know, like an extension cord outside in the rain. Well, if it's a nice fat orange construction one, you're fine because the rain can't get through that insulation. If it's, you know, an old crappy one that you had under the television for a while and it's got all, you know, the insulation has some holes in it, you could set the whole place on fire, right? Um, and it's the same for us. And what coats the, um, the nerves, what actually provides that insulation is fat. So if you're not getting enough fat, there's no way that your nervous system can actually, you know, keep itself safe and sound. Um, and fat is also necessary to do the conversion of things like tryptophan to serotonin. If you don't have enough fat, your body can't actually do it. So all the, all the serotonin in the world isn't going to do any good if you don't have enough fat for your body to process it. Mm-hmm. And this is why people on low-fat diets have a, a suicide rate that's four times as high as other people. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's really scary. Um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting. When I started eating that diet higher in fat, I just felt a lot better just in general. Did, and yeah. it sounds like you experienced that as well. Very dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my case, it's sort of on a, on, a, on a day-to-day level. If I don't eat enough on one day, you know, by the end of that day, I will feel terrible. Mm. And I have to remember why. It's like, oh, right. What did you eat today? You didn't do, <laughs> you didn't do it right. Start over tomorrow. But honestly, even just a spoonful of sour cream at the end of the day can make a huge difference in my mood. Uh-huh. Um, and I know other people in my life like that. I've got one friend and she actually started to keep track because she noticed it herself. And then I explained to her what was going on and she keeps track. And basically, if she doesn't eat exactly two tablespoons of butter, she just falls into a complete, you know, depressive, you know, sort of lump at the middle of the floor. And yeah. she's like, I got to eat more butter. And she'll just go and eat a little bit of butter and feel better <laughs> in half an hour. It really yeah. is that dramatic for people. Yeah. Can you, do you so, mind running us through a little bit about what you eat in a typical day? You mentioned sour cream. Are there, can you kind of go through what kind of foods you're eating? Do you mind that? Sure. No, no. On a very typical day, I would eat, um, I'll start with broth in the morning and I'll have two eggs. And I'm very lucky because uh, right down the street, there are really, really great chickens and ducks. So I have a wonderful source of eggs on as many as I want. And w- where I live right now, we're going to be getting ducks ourselves very soon. So I'll have my own ducks again. And that'll be wonderful because they're really fun and really cute as well as being a great food source for us. So I eat eggs for breakfast and, and my, my bone broth. And I, I make my own bone broth. I boil bones for at least 24 hours. Um, I love chicken broth in particular, but I think that uh, the ruminant bones have more nutrition. So I try to use both. Okay. Even though I really I do prefer the chicken broth myself. But um, another one you can try is fish broth, which is even higher in minerals than the ruminants. But I don't really have a good source right now for fish bones that are any good. I, I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have salmon here. And they're too fatty to really make good broth out of. The fat, you just can't boil fat that long. It, it is not good for it. Okay. So um, I haven't really found a good source of bones here for, for fish broth. But if you live in an area where you can get appropriate bones for, for fish stock, you should try that because it's supposed to be just extraordinarily healing. Um, anyway, so I eat broth. And then um, that's usually what I have for breakfast. And then lunch is usually some form of beef or bison. So that's when I get my red meat in and whatever vegetables are in hand. Mm-hmm. Um I'm lucky that I live in an area that's pretty mild in the winters because we can still get good local vegetables. I know other people aren't as lucky, and you might be stuck with 
a lot of squash <laughs> or, you know, onions and potatoes or whatever. But here we can still get kale and lettuce pretty much year round. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard. Um, and then I usually eat sort of early in the day for dinner. I don't usually eat past four o'clock. And I don't know, I'll usually have whatever's left over, whatever's lying around. And um, usually it'll be a little more meat um, or cheese. I have access to some pretty good cheese here. And um, pretty soon we'll have our own goat milk as well, which is very exciting. Oh, really? Um, You're going to yeah, eat I'm really, your own goat? Yeah, we have, two, we have two goats here. We have two, well, two girls and we have a boy goat now. And we think he did his job, which says that, you know, we're going to have baby goats in two months. And we're really excited. Okay. Um, but I have, I have been able to find raw milk where I live. It's very odd. Um, in Northern California, we're sort of famous for the whole like medical marijuana thing. So there's all these strange drugs that float around, you know, out in, in the town where I live, but raw milk is illegal, <laughs> which I yeah. think is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like drugs I've never even heard of you yeah. know, are available here, and mm. I can't get raw milk except in the underground. I mean, I can't figure this out, but did you see the thing on Stephen Colbert where he, he had a little uh, excerpt on how they made them pour out the raw milk. They, they went in and busted a, a co-op and it was kind of funny how he did that comparing it to marijuana and things like that. They, they went into a co-op with guns drawn and made them pour out all the raw milk. Yeah, there have been a number of us like that. that. It's really horrible. I'll find that on Colbert, though. I bet it's really funny. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so anyway, there is a milk underground, as in many places in this country, you have to know the right people. But I have found the milk underground, and I get really great milk from a grass-fed Jersey cow who's really cute. And, you know, just the whole thing is really wonderful. I, I love the farmer, and I love the animals that he has. So that, I've been getting raw milk from them. So the raw milk is good. I can get raw milk cheese. Um, and then I do make my own yogurt and kefir sometimes as well. So, um, you know, the thing about raw milk is that, as some of your listeners may already know, it's dramatically more digestible than anything that you get from the store. The moment they pasteurize that milk, they've changed the proteins. The proteins in milk are very, very delicate. And the moment that you heat it the way that they do with that kind of flash pasteurization, it completely destroys the proteins. So it turns milk into a substance that really we've never eaten before. Humans have never eaten and yeah, people get a lot of problems with it. And they think that they are lactose intolerant or that they have a milk allergy. They may, in fact, have those problems, but it's more likely that it's the processing of the milk that's caused the problems. Okay. So I highly recommend people try. If you can get a hold of raw milk, I know that it can take time and effort. But if you like dairy products and you think that there might be a problem, especially if you have children, I think it's really important, try to get raw milk. And get involved in whatever is happening locally in your area to make raw milk legal again. Because it's a, such a good food for human beings, and it just seems like a sacrilege to me what they've done to milk and how they've destroyed it. The homogenization is the same thing. Um, you know, it's, it turns the fats into, it breaks the fats down into tiny little molecules so that they won't float to the top anymore. I don't know what's the big deal about shaking your milk before you pour it out. It takes all of two seconds, but apparently the American public has not been willing to do this for a generation. Um, but I, you know, those of us who are willing to take that extra two seconds, we have a right to demand raw milk that's not homogenized, not pasteurized, and that really it comes out of the cow the way it was meant to be drunk. So uh, it's really important to get involved on a local level if that's a struggle that's happening in your area, because the poor farmers are really over a barrel. Right. And the thing is, if they sell directly to the public, they can make enough money to really support themselves. Whereas if their only option is to sell to these gigantic concerns, you know, where they're only going to be getting 12 cents a gallon or something ridiculous, if they sell it to the public at large, they can get five or $6 a gallon. I mean, that is a huge difference. That's the difference between being able to put a new roof on the house, send your kids to college, pay your car insurance. I mean, that's the difference between being a serf and being a smallholder, you know, being an artisan who's a member of the community. 
And I, it's re- these people are taking incredible legal risks to try to get us the food that we have a right to. And I think it, it behooves us to try to fight back on their behalf. So that's my political pitch. If you want to get involved, find the Roma people in your area and yeah. sign up to do some because it's just really important. Anyway, I do eat, drink raw milk. I love raw milk. I love my raw milk cheeses. Um, I mean, my background is, you know, West, Northern and Western European. So I come from a long line of dairy, dairy people who did dairy herding. Okay. So it makes sense that I don't have a problem digesting it. Um, so I know that it can be an issue for people. And I, I know that it doesn't work for everyone. But for me, it works really well. Particularly, you know, with the chronic pain I have with my spine, the raw milk and particularly the butter, it has made such a difference in my pain level. Um, even for on a day-to-day basis, I can tell whether I've had enough dairy or not. And uh, I'm not the only person who has experienced this. I have found others. There's a thing called the Wolzen factor, which is uh, very present in raw, raw animal fats, particularly dairy. And the Wolzen factor is actually an anti-stiffness factor for joints. And I was, I was really um, happy to read about that because it, it felt like it explained, why is it when I eat you know, raw butter and raw cheese, why do I feel better in a few hours? And that, I think that explains it. it may not, but I think that's the reason. So yeah. that's pretty much what I eat on a day. I'm not a big fruit eater. I okay. just don't really crave, um, but I do eat, you know, plenty of vegetables and lots of meat and dairy, eggs, broth, kind of the basic Western price, you know, kind of kind of dietary menu that you might expect. I have a thing for chocolate. I will admit that's my downfall. Okay. Um, I try not to keep it in the house because I can't keep out of it once it's here. So that's my big treat. Right. In a few weeks, I'll have a little chocolate. Um, I don't think that'll kill me, but yeah, that's my thing. Okay. So, Lear, you've given a lot of good reasons why ancestral eating is a healthy way to eat and why it's the way we've probably evolved to eat. What do you say to someone who says, you know, you've gone from one extreme to the other. You went from vegetarian to now more of an ancestral paleo diet. How do you keep yourself from falling into that kind of rigid thinking that you used to as a vegetarian now in your, in your new way of eating? That's a really, really good question, and I think that um, it's a good question to ask of yourself and of everybody in your social circle, because I know that when I was in the vegan world, it's that whole community is really driven by a level of fanaticism that's not healthy. Um, and when I came out of it, it was really a relief to let that go. So there was probably a year or two where I ate pretty much anything I felt like eating, and it was really liberatory on an emotional level. Just to be like, I don't really have any rules right now. I don't actually know what I'm supposed to be eating. I do know that I feel dramatically better when I eat meat. So I'm just going to go with this for a while. And then bit by bit, I found better information about it. So I, I, I read the Sally Fallon book, The Nourishing Traditions. And wow, was that amazing. Because it put all the pieces back together for me. Um, but I try to come at this from a perspective. I'm not trying to get converts. I'm just trying to help people which is really different than when I was in the vegan world where you feel like, you know, you're saving the world, you're saving animals. It's your, it's a moral imperative to get out there and convince other people. I'm not actually trying to convince anybody. I'm just trying to help. If people are having problems and I, I know that this can, you know, that this could provide an answer. I'm happy to give them the information if they ask for it, but I'm not um, out there trying to convince anybody that this is the thing to do. It's more, if you want the information, I'm here and I've got it. And I can tell you what's worked for me. You know, I have this degenerative disease. It really helped. I also have an autoimmune disease. I have Hashimoto's and profoundly helped by going gluten-free. So anybody who's got an autoimmune disease, the gluten is, is absolutely key to, to feeling better. So, you know, when I hear about people who have autoimmune diseases in particular, I'll be like, hey, that's me. You know, I got one too. Let's compare notes. And if they yeah. want to talk, we compare notes. And it's great because I can talk about gluten can talk about how it works. I talk about GAPS diet. They might want to try it. But these are people who want the information. That's very different than just, 
assaulting people with, you know, your moral superiority, which I think is, a, is something that's easy to fall into, especially when you're young, but we really have to guard against it. And I have to say that in the paleo world, I have not found that level of kind of fanaticism. And it's there, there are people who take it up. But I think a lot of us came to this having already done that in our lives. And we know that it didn't work. It was destructive right. to us, it hurt our relationships. We don't want to do it again. Um, so I think we're happy just to talk amongst ourselves. And then, you know, curious others, we're, we're happy to talk to them as well. But I think it's a very different, um, just kind of emotional mindset of when you when you feel like you have a kind of moral calling to change people as opposed to just having information that might help them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lear, you know, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. I know your book was very influential for me, and I hope our listeners go out and read it because there's so much more information in there. Um, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. You too, Aaron. Thank you for your questions, and thank you particularly for all your hard work in putting together a podcast. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more information, go to paleorunner.org. You can send your feedback to Aaron at paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.